Arriving in the UK in 1947, Helena Moss learnt how to be British from a book. Helena was born into a politically active family in Warsaw in 1929. Her testimony encompasses her family's return from exile in Russia and her shock at discovering that almost all of her friends and relatives had perished. Listen to hear her vividly recount her lucky escapes, her mother's terrifying experiences and her father's adventures. Helena, could you tell me when you were born, please? I was born on the 15th of January, 1929. And where were you born? In Warsaw. And what was your name at birth? It's, um, it was Helena Leviner, L-E-W-I-N-E-R. And, and what do you remember of your early life then? Well, the first thing, I, I, I don't remember it, but I know, is that my parents decided to take me out of the smog and, and dust of Warsaw and bring me down to a nearby township which was well known for its pure air, so their darling daughter would not have to breathe in um, the Warsaw air. Uh, so I was really brought up in this little town called Otvotsk, O-T-W-O-C-K. It's about 15 miles from Warsaw. And um, what do you remember of life at that time? Uh, well, first of all, it was, uh, the countryside was mostly forests, pine forests, and the houses in it were kind of stuck in the forest, and one of them was ours. And I do remember that uh, rent had to be paid. And the owner of the piece of land did live nearby in the same piece of land in his own house. And there were janitors. There was a janitor with numerable children. And I played with these children throughout my, when I was two, three, four, or five. and. Um, uh, Warsaw is on the Masurian Plain, so you don't need to dig in very far to get to the sand. So we played in sand like as if it was, um, as if it was um, seaside. So we built castles and things like that. Um, and what did your father do? My father was a commercial traveler. He was mostly away from home. He traveled all over Poland made friends in various towns in Poland, which turned out to be quite useful later on. And did you speak Polish or Yiddish at home? Um, well, my parents spoke Yiddish among themselves, but I, uh, I was brought up with a janitor's children and with servants, because in Poland everybody, uh, even the lowest of middle class, had a servant. Uh, the least of it was someone who came in three times a week, but we were privileged. We had actually a servant that lived in the house. And um, she, she spoke Polish to me, of course, and the children in the playground, and I, I just spoke Polish. I got Yiddish later on when I got uh, a lot older. And what happened? Did, did your life change because of the, the, the change in Europe and the arrival of the Nazis? Well, um, when the war broke out, I was 10. Within weeks, 
the Nazis stepped into Otvotsk. And um, the atmosphere of life changed completely, but it was so unexpected for the likes of my mother. My father was away somewhere, but um, my mother found that whereas bef before Nazis came in, <clears throat> she was a highly respected citizen of that part of Otvotsk. She was a dressmaker, she had her own atelier, and um, the janitor always um, referred to her as Mrs. Leviner. Well, when the Nazis came in, she, she became just Leviner. You know, Leviner, come, come here, Leviner, I want to tell you something or something. So she lost the respect. Then a lot of things began to be in short supply, so you had to go and queue for them. And my mother reported it to me because I didn't go with her. But um, you had to queue for coal, potatoes, I don't know what else. And she said it was, it was frightening because uh, there were Nazi soldiers um, patrolling the place, but they couldn't tell the difference between a Jew or a non-Jew. But the Poles make sure, made sure that uh, they would point out, this is a Jewess, and the Nazi would come and pull the person out of the queue. So my mother found it very uncongenial, and she decided to join her husband if she possibly could. So um, within a week or two of the Nazis coming into Otvotsk, she managed to contact someone who was uh, having a, um, who was in a sanatorium, because this area was well known for TB sanatoria. And he was a young man, probably quite wealthy, from Vilna, who was staying in the, one of the sanatoriums with his nurse. So they decided to go back to Vilna, and they hired a horse-drawn carriage called a droshki uh, with my mother and me. And we packed whatever we could, and we got into the droshki, and that's how we left, about mid-October. And, and nobody tried to stop you at that point? No. no. Nobody stopped anybody anyway. For a long time, you, you, you launched yourself into, um, into the journey the best you could. But the road was strewn with broken cars, broken um, uh, uh, carriages, not carriages, but horse-drawn things, and, and horses, dead horses, half-eaten already by then. But because my father happened to be at home when the war broke out, but there was a stream of refugees from Warsaw about the 7th, 8th, or 9th of September. It tells you there in the, in the book. Nobody knew why, but it was a huge stream of mostly young people. And my mother said to my father, come on, join them. And she packed um, a change of clothes and a pair of sandwiches, a few sandwiches, and she pushed him out to join. He was actually quite a keen walker anyway. So he joined the, the throng. And um, uh, later we, we were told that they were strafed from the air by German uh, aeroplanes and they had to hide in the nearby forests on both sides of the road. So to begin with, they walked by day, but they soon realized they could only walk 
in the dark at night, and by day they hid in the forest. And eventually we heard from my father, not directly, by, but through people who saw, saw him. So we knew that he was in the eastern part of Poland, um, which was taken over by the Soviet forces eventually. So my mother decided we'll join father. And that's how we set out. Were you frightened as a child? Or were you frightened? I didn't know whether I should be frightened or not. I relied on my mother. But in fact, um, I remember the journey quite well, especially because I was travel sick, because I had to sit with my back to the horse. And the um, driver, the coachman, was a bit deaf. And as we drove off, we were about uh, a day and a half from Otvotsk, we heard the word, halt, halt. Well, he didn't hear it, so he drove on, and we had to prod him to make him stop. And we were surrounded by, well, when I say surrounded, it was only two of them, a, a German patrol, a younger man and an older man. And the younger man started pulling, us, pulling the sick man from his seat. Uh, and we kept, kept telling him, I'm cranker, I'm cranker, but he didn't pay attention, he was just pulled him. And then he start pulling, started pulling my mother out of the carriage. My mother pretended that he needed her gloves, so she gave him her gloves. But eventually the older soldier said, Lassie, Lassie, leave them alone. And he did leave us and we proceeded. Uh, they asked us where we were going and we said home. We, the young man was going home. And that's how we proceeded to the border. And uh, we stayed the nights in in peasants' um, outhouses on 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 uh, hay and straw, and we ate black bread with yogurt, which was given to us by the peasants, paid probably I don't know. But um, um, we arrived at the border, which was the river Bug, and at that time it was a fluid border. We were met by a Jewish, by a German patrol, and they again asked us where we were going, home, and um, they asked us our religion, so we had to say Jewish, but the, the nurse, who was a blonde, turned out to be a Muslim, and we were absolutely, ast I was astonished, I didn't know there were Muslims in Poland, but she was a Muslim. Um, but they let us through, and we crossed the river Bug. On the other side, there was a Russian patrol, asked us the same questions, but eventually we got onto a train and to Bialystok. Um, and that's where you expected to meet your father? Well, we knew that he was either in Bialystok or in Brest or in, or in uh, uh, Rovno or somewhere like that. Uh, we were hoping to meet him, of course. Uh, Bialystok was absolutely packed with refugees, absolutely packed to the last degree. But my mother, they must have met together, my mother and my father, because he took us to a place, to a household that he knew. Um, he was, his, his trade was in books. He was a representative of a, of a publishers. So he knew the cultural 
pieces of Bialystok. And this was a manufacturer, wealthy, with a second wife, with a little boy, who was cultured. So my father took my mother and me to that place, and uh, the, the man agreed to house us. And my father, meanwhile, was housed somewhere else, in dire circumstances, I'm not going to describe it, but uh, my mother, my mother and myself were at this um, wealthy man with the cultural ideas. Very soon the house became full. Almost every refugee from Warsaw stopped there. He seemed to know them all. And even I knew some of them. There was a famous duo of comedians called Jigan and Schumacher. They stopped there. Uh, I heard about them, but I've never met them. Uh, our, my pediatrician from Otfotsk stopped there as well. And various other people, I remember a young couple sitting on the settee and constantly turning to each other and kissing each other. Just a young couple. But my mother was determined to go back for things. She realized the circumstances in Bialystok that the Russian army was avid for anything Western. They used to buy, they said, nighties, uh, frilly nighties, and think that they were evening dresses. So my mother realized that she could make a living out as a dressmaker, but she didn't have her tools. And she could see various young people going back and forth across the border, and they said, we're going for our things. But actually, we realized later that they were smuggling things. So my mother said, well, if they can go for their things, so can I. I'm sure they're much younger than me. I'm 45, but I'll go for my things. I'll bring my sewing machine, my good uh, cutting tools, and my mannequin, and various things like that. So she set out, got back to Otvotsk, loaded various things onto a, a peasant's cart, and set out to bring these things. Well, on the way, she, f she saw that she couldn't take them all. So in the next nearest village, she unloaded some things and asked the peasants to keep it for her until she comes back after the troubles. She never saw anything back again. Anyway, gradually she lost everything except for a rucksack with things. And then, by then, the border between German, the German side and the Russian side was hardened. And there was, it was impossible to go across. And you had to know someone to smuggle you across at night. And my mother did find someone who offered her a place in a, in a boat but they were caught, and my mother was taken to the German uh, police station, and she was uh, treated very roughly, uh, undressed and searched, and everything was taken away from her. And, uh, well, as, as much as they managed, I think my, man my, man my mother managed to keep some things from them. Uh, but eventually, after two or three weeks, she managed to smuggle herself across. And then she walked. There was no train because she, she knew there was a station beyond a, a wood, and from there she was hoping to get a train to Bialystok. 
but uh, she was met by two men and they said, well, you're walking, but we know a shortcut through this forest. We'll take you. Well, they took her, but they took everything she had and she was left just like that. Uh, but luckily, at least they didn't kill her. And um, she managed to get to the, to the train and managed to get back to me. When she arrived at, my, at, the, at the place where I was, the people treated me very well. Uh, she looked, I didn't recognize her. She aged about 10 years in the three weeks that she was away from me, about 10 years. But eventually I said, oh, mother. So we were reunited. Um, this is one chapter of the thing. Uh, incidentally, <clears throat> it didn't quite finish because actually these thieves, the forest thieves, they were caught by the Russian police, and they were still they still had some of my mother's things. Um, so my mother got the, them back, Amazing. and it was. Um, an evening dress which she had from Britain, because we had been in Glasgow before the war, my mother and I, visiting my auntie. You might have known her, Hannah Greenhill. So we had visited her, and my mother took a, a lot of things that she, would, she thought would be useful in her trade. So among others, there were a couple of evening dresses, a, a silver fox, a pair of evening shoes, and she got them back. Amazing. And amazing you'd been in Glasgow before the war. Yes. Well, it was very unusual. I was quite the, uh, the star of my group of children. Oh, you were abroad. Oh, wonderful. <laughs> but um, there were children who had been to France, and there were children who had, been, who had attended the French Lycée in Warsaw. So they spoke French, but I could boast my English. Were you in Glasgow quite a long time before the war? Six months. See, and you learned English in that time? I went to school, went to Shawlands Academy for four months, and I learned English perfectly. Why do I say perfectly? I know, because, first of all, I remember. And I remember it was a very Scottish sort of English. Secondly, when we got back here, my aunt had preserved some of my letters that I wrote to her from Poland, and they were spelled perfectly. All the O-U-G-H's and everything was in, in position. So I must have learned English quite well, but I forgot it, you know. You think you've got it in your head, but eight years later you find that it all uh, went through the sieve and you know very little. Well, going back to Bialystok, what happened after that? Well, as I say, my father had a, a, a wee corner, but my mother and I couldn't stay in, the, in Mr. Crook's. His name was Mr. Crook. And Crook doesn't mean crook. As in English, it means uh, a raven. <laughs> so we decided we'd go to the provinces outside of Bialystok. Again, my father had new people everywhere. So we went out and we found a corner in a sweetie factory owned by Jews who uh, they were not manufacturing anymore because this was capitalism, they couldn't. But they did still have their, uh, their equipment and everything. So we got a corner there, my mother and I, 
and that's where we lived, and that's where where the police told her that her things were found, and she left. It was in the middle of winter. She said, I'll be back in a day or two. Meanwhile, she was away for a month, for a week. And um, I was very un unhappy. I, I, was, I was suffering deprivation during that time. And uh, uh, the landlady took me to her bed. She looked after me. My father came in from Bialystok and it, I remember the ground was slippery everywhere where was there was was thick ice, and he slipped somewhere and he broke some ribs, so my landlady, our landlady had to look after him as well but uh, eventually, my mother came, thank goodness but i was i was I lost my appetite, I was pale, I was uh, very unhappy. Uh, just as I was at the beginning of the war, because the, the war started in our backyard. On the 1st of September, Friday it was, I was sitting on the veranda when terrible explosions happened behind my back. Four bombs fell from an aeroplane. And we didn't, my father said, no, there will be no war, no, there are already there are talks already, oh no, there's no video. And it turned out that the war was declared at five in the morning. So I, uh, this, um, these bombs uh, also discombobulated me, <laughs> which, and for about two or three weeks, I went around holding on to my mother's skirt, terrified of every noise from above. Well, not surprising at all. Yeah. I also lost my appetite and went about like a shadow. My mother was always very um, active and to the point she decided that we need to prepare for a possible gas attack and as we don't have any gas mask, she'll make some with, and she procured um, um, what do you call it? Gauze. Gauze. And she made uh, masks for everybody, whoever came. And um, it, we were told that, at least they were told, I wasn't told anything, I just heard it, that if you use bicarbonate of soda and soak these masks, that'll prevent the gas coming through to you. Luckily, But the thing is, um, my mother believed it. They all believed it. But that was at the beginning of the war, the first two or three weeks. And then what uh, happened? Uh, after what? what? Once you... Did you stay in that place? The place was called Bielsk Podlaski. I went to school there for three months, and I w this was my happiest school time. It was a Yiddish school. There were schools in every language there. When the Russians came in, the Russians were in, in power there. When the Russians came in, they kept all the schools and added some more. They were supposed to be very tolerant of nationalities. Uh, so there, was, there were two Yiddish schools. One was Zionist and one was anti-Zionist. Mine was the anti-Zionist one. But I loved it. The teachers were so devoted. They, they were underpaid because this, the schools were maintained by American donations. 
So they were underpaid, but they were so devoted, and we had, uh, the Russians at least gave them money for things like costumes, if we had a, uh, and we had lots of, um, um, what do you call them? Um, concerts, our concerts for, for the public, and we had dancing groups, and I was in a choir. That's how I know a lot of Yiddish songs in, uh, even now, in harmony. But no, it's not, uh, there's no demand for them, unfortunately. But it was, uh, it was the happiest three months. Although I couldn't actually speak Yiddish, but I understood it, and I, um, whenever I was asked to answer questions, I was given permission to do it in Polish. So I had good or very good in every subject except Yiddish. In Yiddish, I had uh, sufficient. <laughs> um, well, we stayed there till about mid-January, and then my mother was, she was pushed by her ambitions, and her, she had two ambitions, completely um, different ones. One was to go to Moscow. Why to Moscow? Because my mother's brother and my mother's sister had lived there since the 1920s. My mother's brother, my uncle, received a very good education and he was, he was a precision engineer. And my, uh, my auntie also received an education. She became a teacher of German. But they had been out of touch for two or three years, because since the terror in Russia, uh, the family, families were scared to write to each other. But my mother had their addresses and she knew they were there, so she was longing to meet them. The, her, her other ambition, which was completely different, was to get through to Vilna, Vilnius, because that was still a separate country. It was Lithuania. Lithuania, yes. And it was a Western type of democracy. And if you were there, you could contact your relatives, which my mother hoped would be my Glasgow relatives, our Glasgow relatives, who promptly sent us a visa and a ticket and everything, and we'll go to, back to Glasgow. Well, neither of these things happened. Because first of all, we were, there was no way we would be permitted to go to Moscow. And my mother went from one official to another, but it was no good. Um, later on, we discovered my uncle had been arrested and shot in 1937. So he was not there anymore. And as far as Vilnius is concerned, we moved towards to another town called Lida to stay near the border, but it didn't, it didn't happen, and the Russian troops marched into Lithuania while we were in Lida and, and annexed Lithuania. We saw the troops going through Lida. It took them about three days. Uh, tanks, uh, artillery, pedestrians, I mean... Um, infantry. Uh, infantry. Infantry in, in um, lorries. But we children loved it. I immediately got friendly with the children. I was, by then I was 11. And we just loved it because these Russians so, sang. And if they stopped for any length of time, they'd jump off and start dancing. 
and we already knew a few Russian songs, so we kept running after them, sing this, sing that, and they looked at us, you know, the, like a, uh, but they were kind, they were, they were good-hearted. I mean, it was not their fault that their government decided to annex Lithuania, but once it was annexed, that was us, we couldn't go there anywhere. And in Lida, that's where we were rounded up in uh, June, it was, I think, 1940, and we were deported. Uh, we were deported to far north, near Archangel. Marian had a similar situation, but she was deported to Siberia proper, but not us. But where we were deported was cold enough and rough enough, uh, but that's where we were picked up and deported. Because you were Polish? Because we, well, because we're refugees. Uh, the refugees, there were so many refugees on that territory. So the, the Russians decided, the Soviets decided to give us a choice. Either register for repatriation back to wherever you came from, or take Soviet citizenship. Well, at that time, my mother was in Bialystok, and my, my mother was in Lida, and my mother, father was still in Bialystok. So they couldn't communicate. My father felt that he had enough of the Soviet regime because they harassed him for his politics. So he said to himself, oh, I'm not staying here. I'm registering for going back. Uh, whatever happens with everybody will happen with me as well. I had no idea about the Holocaust then. But my mother wanted to go to Moscow. Well, she registered for Soviet nationality, so she has a passport with me on it. So when they came to deport us, my mother says, but I've got a passport. Oh, you can stay, but he has to go. And my mother suddenly had this heroic attack of heroism. She says, wherever my husband goes, I go, and my child goes. And that's what saved our lives, because within a year, Lida was overrun by, by the Nazis, and the Jews there were uh, annihilated, just like everyone, by a different method. They were shot, they were, um, they were made to dig their graves, and so on. Uh, incidentally, two of my aunties and my uncle, who did flee from Warsaw, stopped in the eastern parts of Poland that were overtaken by the Russians. Uh, they stopped in Grodno, which was a wee bit further east than Lida, maybe a wee bit more south than Lida, but that... And they decided they've had enough of running, they'll just settle there. And the two girls married, and um, I don't know what my young uncle did, but they decided to settle in Grodno. Well, when the Germans came, goodness knows what happened to them. We know that um, the Jewish population there were made to dig ditches, and then they were shot into the ditches. And my young, two young aunties and my young uncle were probably among them. So tell me then what happened. Your mother decided to go to Archangel with your father. What, what was it like there? Well, we, we were loaded onto um, cattle trucks, cattle wagons. We stayed at the station three days. Uh, 
and our landlady in Lida came with a pot of soup for us. Um, it was a bit frightening, but most of the people in our carriage were young. They were in their twenties. And um, there were a few, like my mother, my parents. My mother got very upset about it all. Um, we didn't get any, uh, the, the toilet arrangement was a hole in the, in the floor for all 40 people there. So they managed to scrounge a few boards from the, from the beds and they built a kind of, uh, a kind of tent with borrowed blankets and that was the toilet. Uh, but not for washing hands or anything. And um, uh, we were dragged through the countryside, stopped in the sheer fields, not in towns. Sometimes it was at town stations and they let us out to get boiling water. This is a wonderful thing in, in Russian in the Russian stations, railway stations, they have a tap and boiling water comes out of it. So you can make, on, make your own tea. It's called kipyatok. And um, I think, I don't know if my mother took, it, uh, took advantage of it, but it was 11 days we were on the journey. And my father recognized, recognized the steps, the, the um, stations of this because he was of the old school. He was uh, active politically when he was in his teens and early twenties and um, he was arrested under the Tsar and he was deported to nor the north of Russia. So he'd been there before? Yes. So he recognized, oh, we're in Smolensk. I wonder whether the next place would be Kursk or whatever. And it was. Oh, he says, I've been this way before, in 1912. In 1912. What were the politics that they had disliked? Well, my father was a socialist, but he was not born a socialist. He came from an ordinary Jewish religious family, but it was the fashion of the day. And my father, for my mother, my father ceased being a religi religious Jew as soon as he had bar mitzvah. And he became drawn into the socialist movement. He wasn't terrible, well, he was quite, quite, uh, uh, quite active actually. He organized Jewish trade unions. And it was difficult because they weren't allowed officially. So my father organized it by uh, calling two or three people at street corners and p proposing resolutions and collecting their answers. And that's how he, uh, well, I, I don't know. I mean, my father told me a little bit about it, but not enough. But I've actually got a newspaper here, which I got in, in Australia with the descriptions of Comrade Leviner's activities. So he was an active socialist, but he wasn't that active because he wasn't uh, given a trial. He wasn't given, he wasn't in court. He was arrested um, by administrative methods. But he had a wonderful time in, uh, where he was sent. Um, he was, uh, they were sent to a small settlement 
and uh, the Tsarist government was um, sufficiently democratic to allow them, make, make them an allowance, but they didn't have to work because they were politicals. And there was a very interesting group of people, educated people, knowledgeable people, and they had lectures almost every night. And my father practically went through a university degree there. And in fact, I've got a photograph. I can prove it because I've got a photograph. I found it. We had it, of course, in our own. But I opened a um, biography of, of Trotsky by Penguin. A picture, a picture biography of Trotsky, page eight. That's my father. <laughs> so was Trotsky there at the same time? Not Trotsky, but Trotsky's wife, the oh. first wife, Alexandra. So he was in the same, but he's not named underneath, but he's there. Can show it to you if you wish. If you wish. Amazing. Yeah. And how how long were you there in Archangel? Um, he. No, once once you arrived. Once there. we arrived, well, it was the begin. It was um, 1940, but in 1941 the war broke out, and when the war broke out, we became um, allies. Before that, we were un uh, uh, before that we were en not enemy, but uh, um, suspicious aliens. But once the war broke out and the Polish government in exile was in London and the, uh, the, the British government and the Americans, no, the Ameri were the Americans in the war by then, maybe they were. But anyway, the, Brit the Brits and the French were allies and the Poles became allies. So they released us, go wherever you want on the territory of Russia. And my mother kept in touch with her sister and her sister, was evacuated to Bashkiria, near Ufa. So we went there. And this was when my mother met her sister for the first time in 20 years. And what did she do there? Did you, did you stay there for the rest of the war? Did you stay there for the rest of the war? Uh, yes, um, except that we moved, when the war was over, we moved to the nearby regional town, because all the time in Bashkiria we were in a collective farm, a peasant commune for four years or five years, and then uh, we moved to the town. But I had schooling all the time. The organizers must give, give the Soviets their due. They organized schooling for us in Archangel, although everybody, the, all the adults were to work in in fields, and um, uh, some people couldn't make enough to feed their family because you had to fulfill a norm. And these were city boys. They, they didn't know how to chop up forests and fulfill a norm. But uh, so they decided that they'll demand from the authorities, demand from the authorities that they shouldn't give them any money they should just give them food for their families. They were young families. Well, this was a revolt. So they were all picked up and taken to the, to the, uh, uh, what would you call it, to Archangel, to, to court. And they wanted my father to be 
Uh, he was summoned as a witness, but he was not a witness for long. He was arrested as well. So we didn't see him till we, uh, from Archangel, he was taken away until we were in Bashkiria and the war started. That's when he came to us. And he had his own adventures, lots of adventures. And, and what language were you schooled in when you were there? Russian. To begin with, I didn't know very much. I remember how I used to mix, mix up words. For example, I'd run words together, which were two words, two separate words, or rather a bit of one word and a bit of the other. I thought that was a word. But gradually I disentangled it, and my Russian became very good, although I say it myself. <laughs> As you see, I do have a certain facility with language, so my Russian was good. And uh, they organized, the Russian, the, the authorities organized a school for us. Um, it was only a primary school, and I was just coming out of the primary age. But my mother said, you go to school, it doesn't matter if you're repeating a year, it doesn't matter, got to go to school. So I went to school, and I remember one of the books we were given to read, we had to read it aloud. And it was in Russian, but the title was Tom Sawyer. So I got to know Tom Sawyer in Russian for the first time. While you were there and, and the war was going on, did you have any idea what was happening back in Poland, or did your mother...? Only, only from the Russian papers. We didn't have a radio. So whatever was in the Russian press, we got to know, but we didn't know anything about the Nazi, uh, you know, the attitude to Jews. We knew which towns were taken and which towns were fought for and so on, especially when it came to Stalingrad, oh, it was all over the papers. And so it was so, after the war that you discovered what had happened to Yeah. Uh, when we were being repatriated uh, in 1946, I think it was, or maybe it was 45, 45, 46, it took us a month to reach from Bashkiria to Poland in cattle trucks, but of course the mood was wonderful. It was April, and it was, the weather was lovely, and so on. Well, we were expecting to meet, that. we realized that uh, there, was, there was a lot about German atrocities, but we didn't realize the extent of it. And my mother was hoping to meet some relatives, my mother, my father, nor a, not a relative to be had. We came across, my father came across one second cousin, and he was called second cousin from then on. He used to come and second cousin coming for supper. And uh, my mother found the same uh, second cousin who had survived as a partisan with her husband. And that was all. It was all these extensive families, you know, they all had big families. That must have been a terrible shock for you all. Oh, it was dreadful. It was dreadful. It was like a coming to live in a cemetery. And and was it soon after that that, that your mother decided that she well, had to she, leave Poland? She wanted to. She wanted to come back to Glasgow all the time, but it took a long time before my uncle negotiated it, but we were lucky because we actually came to Glasgow with passports, with tickets, on a train. Most of our friends smuggled out of Poland. 
across the Czech border or the Austrian border and they got stuck in DP camps and eventually they went, most of them to Australia, but some to Canada, some to, uh, a, lot of, a lot went to Israel, but Israel, it wasn't the, the favored destination. You went to Israel when nobody else wanted you. So uh, my uh, various friends finished up in Australia and some in Canada. But but, but we we were the privileged ones. We actually went on a train. We went through Germany, through Belgium, from Ostend to Dover, from Dover to London, from London to Glasgow. Marvelous. And you've lived here ever since. Yes. And you you married here, I believe. Yes, but he was someone born here. And did you feel very much a, a foreigner? Or? Oh, to begin with, it was dreadful. I felt so alienated. I couldn't, I didn't understand the, the social interaction of people. I didn't understand. I addressed people in an inappropriate manner, I now realize. How, how did you address them? Well, I just asked them personal questions, you know, straight away, instead of being held back. And um, they, they looked at me, you know, but they didn't... Um, even the people I knew before the war, I knew one or two people from school, from Sholens, before the war. When I met them after the war, they didn't want to know. Um, it all stopped when I went to university. Then, well, it didn't stop, didn't stop, but it became easier uh, because I joined the international club. Um, I couldn't afford to join various clubs, so I had to choose. So it was the international club. I remember the subscription was a pound a year. It was a lot. My parents had to... Uh, but um, what helped me a lot in the first year was a book called How to Be an Alien by George Mikes, uh, a Hungarian who had been an alien before the war, and he noticed the various quirks of the British, and he wrote in a thin book, I've got it still, uh, um, uh, and it helped me to laugh with him, you know. Uh, for example, he noticed about town architecture, that a street may be one long street, but it has different names, different sections, like, uh, Kilmarnock Road, Fenwick Road, and all this. Uh, on the other hand, it may be the same street, but it was S in shape or H in shape. And I came across that in London when we were there passing. And I wanted to find certain friends of my father's with, whose address he had. It was Seven Sisters Road. And my English was not up to the exact so we got, I managed to get my parents to Seven Sisters Road by underground. But then we went up and down, up and down. Where is that address? Doesn't seem to. So finally I did summon the courage and I said, what's the matter? I've got this address and there's nothing. He says, ah, but you've got to go to the crossroads, cross it diagonally and the continuation of Seven Sisters Road is there. That's how we, so. Uh, this, uh, the description of road 
um, management in, in Britain helped me. What else did you learn about the British? Well, um, there's a story there about a gathering, a mixed gathering of the British, English of course, and, and Continentals. And um, they were talking about a raid of some sort. And they said, only 14 planes return. And this Continental, which is, there's a drawing of him, he's short and fat and bald. He says, what, ours? He says, no, ours. So that puts you in your place. And, and did you gradually feel that you were actually part of, of Britain? No, by then I felt that I could I observe comical things which I found difficult to digest, but because they were presented to me in this comical form, I could digest them better. There were a lot of, a lot of other stories there, of course. Uh, what did you study at university? I, I d doubled in maths and physics. It, uh, at Glasgow University, it's called NatPhil, Natural Philosophy. Uh, but I had subsidiary subjects. Uh, to begin with, I thought I'd complete an honours, but I wasn't clever enough. So I had to put together uh, a set of other subjects, singles. So I had geology, astronomy, chemistry and, and botany. Chemistry I did very little of because I was very ill that year. Botany I wasn't terribly interested in, but I loved astronomy and I loved geology and I was doing well in geology and I wish I had switched to geology because I would have probably done well in it, but I was terrified of letting go of the subject I was doing because I had a grant. What if the grant is stopped? My parents couldn't afford to, to keep me at university without a grant. So I, I persevered and I got my BSc, but not honours, good enough to teach. And, and you taught thereafter? I taught after, yes. I went to Jordan Hill and um, I was sent to uh, North Kelvin Side, I think my, was my first school. And I, I was made to, to teach science. So it was a lot of chemistry, a lot of physics, very dirty. Uh, I had to wear a lab coat and I was always splashed with acid. There were no lab assistants. You had to make up your equipment yourself. I didn't like it. However, um, I, 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 I taught intermittently, usually a year at a time because I, start, I got married, I started having children. And then I had, by pure chance, I got a part-time job teaching Russian at Eastwood High, which was wonderful. I wasn't a Russian specialist, but I knew my Russian. So uh, then a, a girl came who knew Russian and French and they needed a French teacher. So I was out on my ear. And then I said to myself, well, there's no point in shilly-shallying. I'll need to go uh, and do a full-time job. The point was that when my husband, he, he was a lovely man, very honest, very devoted, very sin sincere, and serious, but um, he wasn't a big earner. He didn't do any of these extra things that people did. He says, I work hard, 
for my living. I'm, I don't I, I don't want to do any evening work and so on. He was also a teacher. He was a teacher, yes. He finished up deputy head of Alan Glenn's. But whenever I wanted money for anything, for the children, for myself, he'd say, well, I gave you 20 pounds only a few days ago. What did you do with it? I said to myself, well, I can't live like that. I better go and make my own money. So I went full time and I decided I'll, I'll um, hide the fact that I can teach science. I'll put maths as my main subject. At least it's clean. You don't need to handle any car uh, copper sulfate and Vaseline and hydrogen and things like that. So I became a math teacher for 12 years. And you had three children, I think? Three children, yes. Quite distinguished, as you know. Indeed, very distinguished. And I gather you didn't feel it appropriate to have more than three children. I think you said that you didn't think it was appropriate to have more No, we decided we've got to have three because a third of our people perished, a third of the Jewish people perished. So it's, uh, it's up to us to replenish the stock. So that's three. Um, but we mustn't have more than three because of the overpopulation. We're of, of very much aware that the world is overpopulated, so it didn't behove us to have any more than three. But later on, I would have quite liked another one. <laughs> but it was too late. <laughs> well, they've all done very well, and, and this has been a very nice afternoon. Thanks for speaking to me. You're welcome. This series was produced by Brooklyn Media Limited. We're gathering the voices.